Hello, and welcome to Ding and Dent, a gaming podcast full of all the youthful exuberance of two gaming dads past their prime. Coming to you from Chicago and St. Louis, here are your two hosts, Rafael Cordero and Charlie Thiel. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Ding and Dent. This is episode 115. We did it, Charlie. We did two weeks... Uh, two episodes on our normal schedule, back to normal. Uh, very excited about that. Um, this is Ding and Dent. I am Raf Cordero, and with me is Charlie Thiel. How are you doing, Charlie? Good. It it felt uh, good, I'll say. Um, post one episode one fourteen, like it felt good to record, getting it out there, yeah. and this feels good getting back to it. It's, it's not at all like um, I was worried. I would I would be dreading, I guess, going back to podcasting. Not yeah, that yeah. it's so hard, but it's just it's another thing to do and. And whatnot, but it, it's it's been good. Hopefully, you feel well, the we, same way because Ref, <laughs> we mentioned, but Ref edits all the podcasts, so there's a bit more um, not fun work there. Yeah, yeah. It was. It's interesting because six months, which is how long the break was, it really is long enough for it to become a new normal. Yeah. And it this this recording came up way faster. Like I remember when we first started this thing, it was like, okay, we got our schedule. Oh, every other week, like there's plenty of time. And now I was like, yeah. oh my God, I, we just recorded. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so uh, before we jump into it, thank you so much to everyone who who didn't delete us from your iTunes or your podcast apps. Um, everyone who who reached out on Twitter or the or the Board Game Geek Guild to say welcome back, like that meant a lot. That a lot of you were were looking forward to hearing from us again and excited that we're coming back. Um, very much appreciate the feedback on. Uh, on the new format, um, you know, the new format where we're each going to talk about one game. I'm already going to blow it up and not talk about one specific game this episode. Um, but I, we, it was, it was really great feedback to see that you all appreciated the way we talk about games and are happy to see the direction that we're going in. So um, that was that was very invigorating. Um, and please continue to give us that feedback as we settle into where where this will end up. Um, definitely want to hear hear from everybody. Um, you know, we like hearing from people in general, and so always happy to take feedback uh, and put it back into the show. Um, so before we jump into the new show, uh, we are confirmed still sponsored by Miniature Market. Uh, so thank you very much to the Miniature Market team. They got back to us and said, of course, they'd be happy to continue sponsoring and they are excited that we're back. So um, as, as I've said before, they've always been great to us and we appreciate it. Uh, if you all can support them when you're doing your um, your online shopping for for these games or any that we talk about or any other games, uh, they're, like I said, they're, they're great to us. So um, help us be great back to them. Also, the Inside Voices Media Network is out there kicking about, people still making content. So please, check out InsideVoicesNetwork.com. So let's get into episode 115. Um, we're going to stick with our freestyling where we just talk about some stuff that's on our mind. Charlie, what's what have you got? Yeah, so I'm, I'm going back to Kickstarter again. Uh, I don't plan on doing this every episode, but there's just another Kickstarter I wanted to talk about. Uh, last, last time I talked about Lasting Tales from Blacklist. This time I'm going to talk about um, a new game from Monster Fight Club. That's the publisher... Which, um, interestingly enough, is the ex uh, Gale Force Nine employees that were really the design team of like mm-hmm. all their amazing games, and, and some people I'm, I'm really um, excited to follow to see what their new stuff's like. Um, so, Monster Bike Club's releasing this this miniature skirmish game um, based in Cyberpunk Red, the Cyberpunk uh, you know big RPG, and it's called Combat Zone. So. There's some things I got to talk about with this. So I'm excited. It will come my eyes. It's Monster Fight Club. So I'm like, that's cool. 
I want to look at what this is because it's it's the first. I think it's the first game besides um, Tentacle Town that they've that they've at least announced. You know, I don't know what else they're working. I'm sure they're working on lots of stuff. They did some miniature mm-hmm. terrain and they did this. And it's on Kickstarter right now. The, the reason why I kind of hesitated there, had like a you know not a caveat, is that this game is is really really expensive. Um, mm-hmm. Now I guess you could argue well. You know, it's it's comparable to like a Games Workshop game, and that's kind of true. But it would still be amongst their most more expensive games. It's a hundred and twenty dollars for uh, U.S. for um, basically two gangs, equivalent of Necromunda two gangs that okay. are plastic miniatures, and then you get a. They describe the board. It's not neoprene. It's it's cardboard paper. So I assume that's like the thin, not like, like a paper mat, mat, but like the. Or, or like more like a, um, a player board, right, in a board game. Like the thinner. Okay. Yes. That, that's how I imagine. I'm not, not confirmed, but that's what I, I picture. I think like there was. Stock. Yeah, like thicker cardstock. Um, and the, and the, the graphics look good. And it comes with some 3D terrain. Some of it's cardboard. Um, I think it clips together a la Core Space. Um, but it's more okay. like two-story buildings that are like ruins is one of them. And it's got a plastic shipping container, which those are actually really expensive. If you look at like uh, 1843, <laughs> the miniature game had them. And those sell for $25 a piece on eBay. Uh, Warhammer 40Ks shipping containers sell for quite a bit individually on eBay. Yeah. Um, so that adds a bit. And then there's there's cards in the game for the characters and like dice and things like that. So, yeah. So that's the, the this Calvin brought this up on, on Twitter. He did, yeah. It was a good little it. Yeah. discussion prompt. Yeah. And and I don't know. I have no inside information on this game. I, I, honestly, much if I could respond to my tweets, I tweeted about it. And said if I want more information, you know, they could reach out to me. But I felt like I didn't want to bother them at this point or whatever because, you know, whatever. But um, to me, I wonder how much of the cost of the license. And then I also wonder how much yeah. of the cost is that they, they apparently make the miniatures themselves. I don't know if that means they're 3D printed, I would assume. Maybe hmm. they have some kind of mold system on, on site because they're plastic. Um, and they are they, – so they sell these minis already. Without the game, before the game was was on Kickstarter, they they had made these minis. I guess they knew they were going to make a game, or okay. maybe they just made the minis to sell, kind of like how um, um, Adam Poots did that with Kingdom Death Monster. He made minis first and then made a game later. Yeah, so, there's a lot of companies that do that. Yeah, so these minis are proven, right? Like there's customers who are buying them, who I've seen based on comments on Facebook and stuff, are buying this game. So the minis are, are high quality. They're okay. I don't know if their games workshop quality, but they look you know like they could be. Okay. Okay. And you have to assemble them yourself, but there's not a lot of pieces from what I understand. So that's the big, you know, watch out. It costs a lot. So I don't know if anyone is going to be interested on it that listens to Dang and Dent because, you know, we're primarily a board game podcast. So we do talk about miniatures games. The system looks cool, though, um, from what I can tell from the Kickstarter page. It's got like this this graded color system where it's like green, yellow, and red. And you have like so many green, yellow, or red actions. And I believe like maybe your actions change colors when you're wounded. Like as your, as your characters lose effectiveness, they get red actions. And so if you like attack with a green, uh, like you use a D12 versus a D8 if you're yellow, right? And, and having a higher range of numbers, I guess is better because you need a higher target number maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that looked neat. And that affects like how far you move. Like a green movement action is different than a yellow as well. So that, that looked interesting. And there's like a reaction system where you can respond to actions and all that stuff. So... I'm kind of excited to see sort of feedback on this one, I guess. Like, I'm personally yeah. not pledging for it. Um, I'll be honest, because I don't 
need like another miniatures game. I and I really don't need another <laughs> sci-fi miniatures game. Um, <laughs> yeah, tell me about it. You know, like if, if they send me a review copy, I would be happy to review it and check it out. Sure. Um, but I I just don't see myself buying into it, mostly because I've dedicated my my sci-fi scrimmage to core space. I spent a lot of money there as well as review yeah. copies. But I don't. I, I personally don't play enough miniatures games often enough that I can. You know, do that as well. And I just got into a Marvel Crisis Protocol too. But, yeah, um, I'm, yeah. I, I'm with you. I'm curious about it. It looks interesting. It has, from what I can tell, skimming the Kickstarter, seems like it has a sort of Kill Team vibe. Yeah. Um, with with you know the cyberpunk setting, um, and then it, it uses the names of the characters. It's got a heavy, a ganger, and a juve. Ganger yeah, and yeah. juve are right out of Necromunda. Yeah. So I think it's, and those are also common. Like juve is a common term in kind of dystopian mm-hmm. punk type settings yeah. so you can definitely see the influence I'm, i'd be curious to see how it plays and how it stacks up to those from a game mechanics wise because kill team and, and necromunda are a ton of fun but they they have their issues um for sure with them what what carries those games so much is the minis and the setting on yeah. top of all of that right so um be really interested to see how this one how this one would shake out um the minis look like they're pretty detailed yeah. which is great, um, but they're not super dynamic poses, at least not compared That's to true. GW. Yeah, so, yeah, you're right there, yeah. Um, so yeah, like you said, I'm, I'm with you. I'd be curious to see how this shakes out, and um, especially if they have plans to kind of expand it and create scenarios and stuff like that. So looks, yeah, it looks neat. Yeah, so yeah, I just wanted to bring that up because I'm sure barely anyone's aware of it. I, I haven't seen it posted about much. I know yeah. um, like it's it's gaining traction in the cyberpunk community, but like my... Okay. My social media network is mostly board gamers with some Necromunda, some 40K, some core space people mixed in that I follow, and I just haven't seen it talked about. So I wanted to bring it up. So that's mm-hmm. uh, Cyber, Cyberpunk Red Combat Zone, and it's on Kickstarter right now. Um, sweet. So so my, my freestyling is uh, Magic the Gathering. I, I almost decided to talk about Magic as my one game for this episode. I think I'll do that next episode. Uh, but in the meantime, I'm particularly excited about Strixhaven, which is the latest set. Um, so over the last couple months, I have dove pretty hard into the deep end of, of magic, the gathering, or at least that would be a fair statement if it were any game, but magic in, in, <laughs> in which case, because it's magic, I'm actually still like treading water in the kiddie pool, but it feels to me like I've been like, I've jumped headfirst in the deep end as far as how much I'm playing on, on magic arena and you know, the, the boxes of cards I've got scattered around. Uh, but Strixhaven is the new set. So every three to four months they release a new set and it's, you know, 250 to 300 uh, new cards that are all uh, of a set designed to work together. Um, and I've learned so many interesting things about magic design. I, I played a little bit of magic in college and then basically dismissed it all this time. Like, like many board gamers have, at least in the communities that I ran in, like, you know, uh, the, board game subreddit and stuff like that. Everyone was just kind of like moved on from magic and didn't really give it too much of an extra thought. And there's a lot of really cool design in it. Um, in particular, the way they design these sets and the cards in them. So I'm really having a ball playing it. And Strixhaven is a, uh, wizards university. Uh, it does not feel like Harry Potter at all. Um, there were some rumors that this year was intended to be a year full of 
licenses where there was a Game of Thrones set, a Harry Potter set. Um, there will be a D&D set is the next set is, is D&D. So there was kind of rumors. This does not feel like Harry Potter with a serial number filed off. It feels very original, but it's a it's a university. Um, and what's kind of fun about playing the draft format and what I, what I like about it is that uh, there's five colleges in the school and each college is a color pair. And they are color pairs, I think, that are not always... The, more, the most common ones that are put together, green, red is not, is, is a very common color pair. And this is not, that's not representative. Uh, but even among that, they, they've broken from their normal themes. So red, white is typically a very aggressive deck. And in this set, it's not. Um, so they've, they've tweaked some stuff. Um, I'm having a lot of fun playing it. And the reason I'm freestyling about it right now is that it just launched with paper cards like this week. Like you're, if you pre-ordered it, your shipments are like just shipping out now, um, like the day of recording, but it's been out for a couple weeks on magic arena, which is the free magic way to play magic, um, online. There's a free client, it's a free app. Now that's on Android and iOS. Um, and I'll talk about this when I get a little bit more into magic, but um, you can actually play quite a bit and get a ton of cards without spending any money on arena. So I've gotten to play around with these new cards and it's just, I'm just really having a lot of fun with magic. That's awesome. I, yeah, I, I think I've mentioned on the podcast that I am not a magic expert. I've played it a few times. I've never owned a lot of magic cards. Um, even like approaching that and like, just buying some cards kind of scares me the idea of that. (laughs) It is actually pretty daunting to get into. One of my, one of my buddies is the one who kind of rallied us in the entire, my entire game group is now, is now playing. But um, I will, I will talk in the the episode when I talk about magic, there's no way, first of all, I don't know enough, but there's no way that I could ever do like a deep delve into like, like reviewing magic, right? The way we would normally approach a game. Um, But I can approach it the way we normally do from like interesting design and like just the land system, which frustrates me still. There's so many different types of lands that all have very specific purposes. Like, so there's all this like intelligent design layered into it. That's kind of the stuff I want to talk about. Um, And this is also a good opportunity. I did want to give a shout out to some friends of the podcast, Uh, Jake Friedman, who actually wrote for the review corner for a little bit back when we were doing the written reviews um, has a new podcast called decision space. And it's a really interesting podcast. I think a lot of our listeners would enjoy it. Uh, It's not a review or critical analysis kind of the way we do. Um, It's called decision space because they take a game and they break down the types and depth of decisions that you make in this, in the game and where, why the game is a, why the game is interesting from the perspective of it puts good, meaningful decisions in front of the players and they're, they're weighty and they matter and they, they kind of break those decisions down. And, and so it's not like a critical analysis. It's more like a, a value a mechanical evaluation, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I've really enjoyed listening to it and they, they did an episode on magic recently. And I think Jake was either on the pro tour or at one point in his life played enough to be competing to join the pro tour. So they had some really like intelligent things to say about it that I, that I thought were interesting. So I wanted to give them a shout out. Cool. Yeah. So I've seen them talk about the podcast on social media and looked pretty cool. Yeah, so I'll I'll get into magic a little bit more in another episode. Um, but it's very much with with this kind of being the what's on our mind segment. It is very much on my mind, kind of at mm-hmm. all times. I've got I've got six draft boosters sitting on the table here, waiting for my my game group to get together so we can go do uh, some limited play. So um, that's kind of what's on my mind. 
Let's get into the meat and potatoes of the episode. Uh, so for, for those of you who may be rediscovering us, we are changing. We have changed our format just a little bit. We're only going to be doing one game each or one discussion topic each um, and trying to go into it a little bit more in depth than kind of the, the way our previous like four games plus episodes allowed us to. So um, we'll get right into that with Charlie's game. Yeah, I'm going to bring the heat again with more hotness. Um, <laughs> not not intentionally, but I wanted to talk about this game because it left uh, a good impression on me, and it's very different. So I talked about Sleeping Gods in the last episode, and Sleeping Gods, as well as this game, The Initiative, and Stardew Valley are the three 2021 releases I've played so far. And Sleeping Gods is probably my top 2021 release with such stiff competition, and The Initiative... <laughs> Is is up there? It's it, it's close. I don't like it quite as much, but it's it's very good. Uh, Sturdy Valley is very uh, mediocre, but maybe <laughs> we'll talk about it again someday. Maybe not. Anyway, the initiative. Okay, what attracted me to the initiative when I heard about it was it was um, the new Corey Knixka game, and Corey is a designer that Raph and I are both big fans of. He's he, I'm sure if you're out there, you've at least heard of one of his games. You probably played him if you listen to us, but maybe mm-hmm. not. Um, he designed Battlestar Galactica, uh, StarCraft, the board game, Gears of War, Mansions of Madness. Uh, what else? Like like most of FFG's classic catalog, yeah. he had a hand in. He you know he worked in Twilight Imperium. It's just huge huge games. Lots of our favorite games. Um, so he's kind of an epic designer, and he left uh, Fantasy Flight specifically to form Unexpected Games. Another. Asmodee owned subsidiaries, so it's not like he left the company he was working for, it's just more he went to do his own studio, and I think he's the only employee of Unexpected <laughs> Games, but um, we'll see how that goes. So his goal was to make innovative and unique designs, and this certainly qualifies, which is part of the excitement and, and part of my appreciation. The initiative is a weird one. The closest thing I can describe this to is an escape room game, or, or at least heavily influenced by the escape room tabletop genre. How this works is really it's it's wed strung into its story and what you're doing. The the narrative of the game is conveyed in a comic book, more like single page chapters, okay? okay? And it describes what's happening in this sort of meta narrative. You play as kids in the nineties, so it's got kind of a kind of a Stranger Things vibe. I know it's nineties, but it, you know, it's still kind of like the, the kids going on an adventure. A little bit I wouldn't say scary, but like um there's like a CIA, someone watching over you kind of aspect to it. And that's interesting. But So you don't know what's going on. There's a mystery. And you're these kids, and then it starts off by um, like, like the first comic panel, which I guess this is technically a spoiler, but it's, it's the intro, <laughs> and it's what the game is about. But you, the kids like go to this garage sale, and they buy a board game called The Key and bring it back, or, or specifically one of the characters does. And they start playing this game. So the bulk of your time playing this game is going to be playing as those kids playing the game. Kind of think uh, Millennium Blitz, I guess, where you were you know, playing as card players playing a CCG. Yeah. That, that layer isn't huge. Like, like you don't do anything with as those kids. It's more like you're playing the key, but really you're those kids because that's like what ties everything together. And your character, like your character card with an ability, you, you can kind of get stuff during the game, more powers, um, is that kid not the not the character in the key, which is the uh, the game where the Inception you know game within a game thing, um, and then there's a third aspect, kind of tying into the comic narrative, 
are like meta level cryptographs. So one thing that that escape room tabletop games and really board game deduction games and stuff like that in general have not really broached often is like cryptography. Like we have yeah. a lot of puzzle solving where you're like visually doing stuff or combining things or, or whatever, but there's not a lot of code breaking in at least the exit and unlock games I've played. It's more of a different type of puzzle, more of escape room, like with objects, but translated to cards type thing. So that's different here because you, you feel like you're cracking codes. This game is not hard. The codes are not like you're going to spend an hour or half an hour, like arguing people at the table, getting frustrated. It really is an easy game overall. Um, particularly for someone who plays a lot of board games, I would say, and who has that like deductive mind and, and you know, is really thinking critically about what they're encountering. But that would normally, I would normally hate that. I, I really want my co-ops to punish me. Like Corey's other games, yeah. like, like Gears of War. I want games like that where it beats me bad so that I need to come back to the game and rethink how I'm doing it. If it's too easy, you know, there's nothing there in a co-op game if it's too easy because you're just, the challenge level is why you're playing it. I know the narrative matters, but like that's the main focal point that you're playing against. So this though, while it's, while it's extremely easy, extremely, maybe it's a tough one, while it's easy, um, I don't think it's a big, it's a problems game. I, I don't think it is at all. Um, I think because this game is about uncovering that narrative. So it's sort of like, it's sort of like a legacy game-ish. It's not really a legacy game, but it feels that way to a degree. So you're rewarded for your solving the puzzles by, by getting to the good parts. And the puzzles are just challenging enough that when you solve them, you still feel clever, even though they're not terribly hard. Right? Like you're... That's- that's, that's what I want out of solving yeah. puzzles. I I like, it's really funny because if a puzzle takes me three to five minutes to solve, I feel really clever and smart. And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, these designers made such an awesome puzzle and I solved it and I'm so great. And if I, if it takes me like 10 minutes to solve a puzzle, I'm like, that was dumb. Like, I'm not dumb. It <laughs> <laughs> was a bad puzzle. So yeah. like, there's a sweet spot where it's like just easy enough to, for you to get it like right before it gets frustrating. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff with like translating characters to letters to make phrases and questions that you answer later. Some of the puzzles you'll uncover throughout the game and you won't be able to solve them with the right tools until later in the game and you just don't know when that happens. But it all feels, it feels really well put together. I, I would say usually um, in like Unlock, I've played that the most. I've played Exit as well and, and Escape from the Game and a few others. But Unlock is the, is the sort of um, franchise I have the most experience with with mm-hmm. tabletop escape room games. And those have a good difficulty generally, but there's always like a couple puzzles that you're like, this that's just stupid. That doesn't happen here at all. There was not one. Okay. And I played through this whole game, at least the campaign. Not not There's side missions I'll get to, but I, I played through the whole campaign and there was not one thing that happened in the game where I was like, this is stupid. That puzzle was like dumb. Why did they do this? It just, I keep coming back to this game is really well developed it, you know it doesn't surprise me that Corey had a, had his hands in this because it, it feels like someone who was experienced with game design really took this and and took escape room games to the next level because there's no kludginess there's no like am i doing this right type of feeling where it's kind of awkward it just it feels like a smooth refined game and that's great okay so the story here is pretty light. You know, it's told in comic book, which is cool. And that gives it some weight because there's like a physical thing you're interacting with and reading and kind of showing the group if you're playing uh, non-solo. But it's like a light, young adult, 
story. I, I kind of mentioned that in the Sleeping Gods as well. It's a different vibe here, but it's a game that you can definitely play with your kids. I played this with my daughter a little bit, and she got into it, and, and it works as a family game. I think you could play with gamers as well if you have the right expectations, right? So I think that's important. But it's kind of a family weight game. Um, the key, which is that the board game, the game within the game the kids are playing, that's, I said, the bulk of what you'll be doing. That's like a, a co-op strategy game where you're moving room to room and picking up these tokens that are face down and kind of shuffled around to reveal a symbol. And if you get that a symbol that's on this question card for the mission, you can flip up this little window and show what that letter or number is, right? So if there's, say, like an upside down triangle is the token you pick up, you look at the little, there's this plastic contraption thing with, with like flippable plastic windows. It's hard to describe. Um, and if you had that symbol on there, you flip up all the characters that, that have that kind of wheel of fortune, like turn the thing style. And um, if it's not on there, you just discard the token, and keep going. Now what makes the co-op game somewhat fulfilling, I say somewhat there as a key word um, is that the action system it uses is pretty compelling for a simple strategic game. You have a hand of cards all from the same deck. Everyone draws from the same deck and they'll have a suit and a number. The suit does not matter at first. The, the game does have more rules added throughout the campaign, but the suit doesn't matter right now. So you're playing a number one through 12. There's only one copy of each number per suit to an action space. So like move, um, Intel lets you like flip a token when you're not in the room and then gather lets you collect tokens that you're in the room of. Um, but you play, you play a number down that is higher than the previously played number on this action. So I would not play my 10 as the first card of the game on a move because after me, people can only play 11 and 12 on that card. So if referee wanted to move after me and he only has a, a six, a nine, a two, and a three, he can't move then. So you can clear okay. these with like a, like a regroup action also, but that, that you can't clear. So if you put a 12 on the regroup, right, it's a different problem. But anyway, so it's managing that, that economy of cards, which is not like an intense strategic thing. But it's enough of like a cooperative challenge that's interesting and kind of its own little family weight puzzle. And you can't talk about the numbers you have, which may bother some people. Kind of the Battlestar Galactica thing where you can say like, oh, I have, you know, higher numbers. Don't play a high number. But you can't say I have only tens or whatever. Um, I think the key, though, the key being that that strategic game within a game that you're playing, the board game, is the weakest part of this initiative experience. And I don't mean that in an overly negative way, it is a criticism, I would say, that it could have it could have been more compelling, but it's like, I think there was a big challenge with this design to hit its its overall weight as an experience that the, the key portion had to be streamlined and simple to a degree. Yeah, it, because of that extra level of complexity and, and all that yeah. sort of stuff. Yeah, and, and especially if it was longer and people didn't enjoy it as much, like they just kind of enjoyed it, it would be a big drain on the experience, right? Like if it, if it was yeah. a, an hour and a half long game and you're not really that, that enamored with it, you're not going to make it through the 14 mission campaign. Right. Um, the key portion of the game will take like 30 to 60 minutes. It, it More players, probably a little bit longer. I, I played this mostly solo, but I did play up to three and it'll take a little longer with more because of the discussion to a degree and stuff like that. But it can be fast. You can guess sort of the the phrase that you're trying to get. You can guess it before you even go if you thought you knew it. But if you get it wrong, then you lose. So it's like you kind of are playing this game of like how long can we can we keep going? Because so I didn't say this, but the, the game's on a timer. So 
once you go through the whole deck of action cards, you shuffle in these stopwatch cards. And this is very much like uh, Seventh Continent, where you had the curse card you shuffle in. And when you hit a curse in the discard, when you discard a curse after reshuffling that game, you lose. In this one, you have to hit three total time symbols. Uh, most of the time okay. symbol cards have one. There's one with two. So once you've drawn one time symbol card out of the deck, after you've reshuffled, you're like, ooh, any card can end the game now. Maybe we should stop and guess. right? And you don't have to draw more cards. Once you've reshuffled the deck. So you may be like, I'm just not going to draw this turn. I have two cards. I'll do one thing and, and wait till it comes around. So I like that tension. That's probably the best part of the board game is when it gets in that like crunch time and, and you're weighing, should we guess? And it, and while most of the answers aren't terribly challenging, there is some trickery. There is some, ooh, I don't know if I want to guess. Are they, are they trying to make me think the last word is this when it could be something else? But but it's, it's neat. And there's some like... Um, deduction in that portion of the game because say you have one word on that you have not uncovered at all okay so say you say you've uncovered the phrase this is not in the game this is made up we're going say it's we're going to the mall okay and and that's and that's not in the game at all and the last word is mall and you've uncovered none of the letters which may not work if because whatever but if (laughs) because if you know if you uncovered an m earlier be mall would be the m would be uncovered but say you have M uncovered, and you see the last two characters are the same, right? Because if, if the L is an upside down triangle, yeah. you would know the last two letters are the same, even if you have not uncovered them because they're the same symbol above it on that window as you flip. Okay. So that can be like a clue. You're like, ooh, it's got to be two of the same letter at the end. Only certain words work, and you guess and win. And that makes you feel smart, even though it's simple and not like a terribly complex puzzle. So it just feels yeah. like you're doing like a decryption thing, even though it's a simple cooperative game. Key, though, is the least interesting part because it's it's just not terribly exciting. It's just okay. There's some cool moments like the description decryption aspect and a timer, but otherwise it's a simple co-op game. The meta puzzles are where it's at and where I've seen the um, sort of mid-lean reviews for this. Some people really like this game, some, some have not. The mid-lean reviews say that playing the key is dull and it's just like a, a speed bump to get to the good parts of the game. And I can understand that. Yeah. I don't feel that way completely. I mean, there's there's moments where I kind of do, but overall I don't. I think it's well integrated overall. Um, but that is a big part of whether you enjoy this game. I think it's probably the main part, really, if you're willing to put up with the key play or if you enjoy it, whether you'll enjoy the rest of the game. Everyone I've read that likes Escape Room games, everyone that's talked about this game in forums, multiple reviews, how I feel is that the the narrative meta puzzles and the comic integration are fantastic. Sure. Um, there's some really big, cool twists in the game I'm not going to talk about. Um I, I think I should mention this. It's a spoiler, but it's it's kind of you can find it easily on BGG. So don't listen for about twenty seconds if you if you care <laughs> about any even the faintest spoiler. There is component modification in this game, kind okay. of. I don't want to say exactly how, but you do stuff to the game to where I would not buy this used. That's why that's why I want to talk about it. I don't want people to buy this used from someone and then to have it you know ruined. Um, I think I would hope most people that were selling this used would say, hey, there's spoilers in this game and, and it's not going to be reset completely, but whatever. Don't buy it used if, you're, if that's important to you. But the, the component modification stuff is some, some of the best stuff in the game. Nice. And it does, some, it, does, it does something I've never seen done before in a game. That's really neat. That's all awesome. that, that That's kind of cemented. That moment was big enough that it cemented this game as, as being overall a really innovative experience for me. So I like this game. It feels like you're solving puzzles, which is important in every aspect of the game. The layers are tied together not perfectly, but but certainly well enough. The, the comic and the meta puzzles are, are perfectly, I would say. Um, but the key's tied well enough to those. I think the ending's a little lackluster. Um, 
Do you know if so Corey, did Corey like write all the narrative himself? I don't Is this kind of like the that's Isaac a, Childress Gloomhaven situation? That's a very good question. I don't know. I if, okay. I, if I had to guess, I would say maybe he did. Um, but I don't. I don't know that, and I don't have okay. it close enough to me that I can go get it really quickly. But um, that would have been good to know before I talked about it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, it's I w- it's like hard to talk about the ending being lackluster without giving away anything. Sure. But I think some of that's my expectation. Like, don't expect a huge grand any you're, you're playing a game, let me put it this way, you're playing a game where each chapter, which is a mission, there's 14 missions, so it's like at most 14 hours of play for the campaign, it's not going to take you that long. It took me about eight hours. Okay. Um, is a one-page comic, right? So, like, five panels, six panels. Okay. So, if the story is at that level, which is, to me, enough, but it's not, you know, like you're reading three pages of of dense words, right? Well, it's like not it, like Legacy of Dragonhold, right? Exactly. Which was, you so, know, a hundred plus pages of word. Yeah, text, yeah. You know? So if you come to the ending expecting like a mini comic in and of itself just for the ending, you're not going to get it, right? Okay. That's that's kind of unfair, I guess. But it's just any game that's a campaign, it's like the ending. I hope it hits yeah. hard, and this one was just okay. The ending. Well, it it matters. I mean, like the that's the big thing with, with stuff like time stories and things like that. You've got to get to the payoff because yeah. in a campaign game, in a narrative game, a- a- any one individual game has elements of it that are feeding forward. And so by design, it, it makes you anticipate things and it gives you expectations mm-hmm. and it, it does not provide total like finality and closure. So it, it does have to build something. So I think it, it's fair to say, you know, th- that, that the game set up certain expectations um, and then either did or didn't fully deliver on them. I think that's yeah, that's but fair I, I guess say. what I'm saying is I'm not sure the game does set those expectations here. I would say more so it doesn't. It's more of that I have expectations if I'm playing a campaign okay. game that maybe I shouldn't bring that into this game, right? Like, like Sleeping yeah. Gods is very different. That, that's a 10-hour heavy narrative game I said the ending was really, really pretty good. Um, but a game that's that's eight hours, that's single-page comics, should be judged differently, right? Like, the ending can't yeah, have the same Yeah, that's kind of like the level of narrative that came from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles board game from yeah. a few years ago, right? Yeah, that's a good comparison, yeah. So, I, but, but, that eight-hour campaign. Okay, here's another thing that, that may affect people differently. So if you're talking, if it's important to you that you get really good value out of your games, I'm not sure this at $43 from Miniature Market is a, is a great value. I think, I think the experience is worth it for sure. But someone may argue that it's not. Now you have a 14 mission campaign that missions, like I said, take 30 to 60 minutes. And then you have, um, that's over. But then you have 24 missions that are individual. I think, I don't want to say those are just added to sort of prop up that value proposition because they're not, I looked through them. I've, I've not played. I played one of them. I think I've not, I've looked through them and they have some interesting twists. You can tell like Corey put effort into making those interesting, but the key, as I said, I think is the weakest element of the, of the game. So for me, I don't care about those at all. Yeah. So if you're paying $42 just for that campaign of 14 missions and eight hours, like I said, you may think that's not enough um, and you should get better value out of it. But on the flip side I am very pleased with the length of this campaign. Of, I didn't even call it a campaign, of this story. I think, I wish more games would do this. Eight hours, to me, is almost like perfect. Because it's in, yeah. in such bite size. Like, you can play a chapter in half an hour. So I'd be playing, I think I played 75% of it solo. I'd have it set up for solo play and just leave it set up when I was doing those chapters. 
and I'd play a chapter. Some of them would be short. Say it's like a 20-minute fast chapter. And I'd be like, okay, boom, let's shuffle the deck and play again. I get to read another page of the comic. And it didn't feel like I was being cheated. It, it just, I don't know, the the portions of story allotted out and game allotted out in chapter, to me, felt so appropriate to this game's weight and like yeah. and its audience. And it just felt good. I just I think this is a really neat game. I think I'm probably giving it a little more... Um, leeway or like a little higher of a rating slightly because it's so innovative i, I think it is innovative i challenge anyone who said it isn't um but i did enjoy it regardless of that i just think it does some really cool things i like escape room tabletop games if you don't i wouldn't even approach this game right like that it's not it's not an escape room game but it's oh it's such a big part of its dna that you, you would have to enjoy that genre to, to want to play this yeah so i i I would recommend this game for sure. If you ha- if you know someone that has it, try it. Maybe play a one-off mission if you're not sure. If you can find someone that has it, there's like demo mission, um, a, a demo mission set of of a card. I think it's maybe two demo missions that you don't get buying the game, but they're like out there. Maybe once we have conventions again, I know they sent them to reviewers, so that's a good way to demo it to someone. It's like a shorter mission out. that's easy. Yeah, and um, you don't get a taste of the meta narrative, which is the best part. But I think you get enough of a taste of oh, this is kind of what this game's about. Um, yeah, so I I am one of the biggest results of this game is that I'm really really looking forward now to what unexpected games will do. I think Corey's sort of been on this. To me, this feels like a uh, like a maturing of what he tried to do with the Lost Expedition. Not at all the same game. Do not let that scare you because that game. I actually enjoyed that game, but I was in a minority. Yeah. Um, of that. The Lost Expedition was Corey's last game, which was very, very weird. Each copy you bought was kind of different and had a weird mix of stuff. I don't want to spend too much time talking about that, but I would Is say it just it discovery failed. one, right? Yes, it's yeah. The discovery last, yeah. Or, I, mean, I would not, say not that, that game discovering Discovery Lands Unknown is what it's called. Sorry, I said the wrong name. Discovery yeah. Lands Unknown. It was um, neat and interesting, but I would agree with you that it, it ultimately was a failure. It was very ambitious, but yeah. It, so that that's what I'm saying. That thread of ambition of trying something different comes into this in a completely different mechanical game um and it feels like he learned something or or maybe he and mature is not the right word because he's he's such a yeah know, story designer already that's kind of a dumb thing to say but this this sort of idea of what he's doing matured um of unlocking content and, and doing crazy interesting narrative things so anyway the, i love i love i don't love this game it's not my top 30 but i think this is definitely gonna be one of my top games of um 2021 I think it's very good. Um, yeah. So the initiative from nice. Unexpected Games. All right. So I'm, I'm going to go in a little bit of a different direction. Like I said, kind of at the top of the episode. This is more of a discussion topic. Uh, I was all set to talk about a game uh, for this episode. And then I saw a tweet by Eric Lang earlier today um, that just kind of like lived, you know, like the phrase like living rent free in your head. Like I've just been thinking about it all day. Um, and not necessarily because of what he said per se, but it's a topic that has come up over and over and over again over the years from before we even started podcasting. And it's on the the topic of gateway games and the term and what is a gateway game and what does that mean? Um, So I'm going to read his tweet verbatim. It's actually part of a thread. I'm not going to read the entire thread, uh, but I'll read the first tweet. And then if you're you're interested in in the context, you can go find it. Um, But this is Eric Lang, designer of Blood Rage, uh, of Rising Rising Sun, um, you know, big Simon designer. He has left Simon is out on his own now. Um, but he's, you know, he's one of the, you know, in, in the pantheon of 
big game designers, you know, kind of of all time, I would say that he's up there, uh, certainly of the modern board game era. Uh, but here's a tweet. He said, here's a spicy one for y'all. The hobby game industry's Overton window of gateway game is utterly ridiculous. Pandemic and Ticket to Ride are great strategy games, not gateway games. Uno is a gateway game. Time to recalibrate. Um, and his thread goes on to basically talk about the idea that those of us who are in the hobby have very high tolerances for complexity and price point in games, um, that we also have a very kind of myopic vision of what it means to either be in the hobby or get into the hobby. And it, it follows a very certain um, curve or arc um, where you get into the hobby and you collect a lot and you you kind of try ever more complex games and that sort of thing. Uh, and he kind of just kind of wraps it up with like, we need to work. And, and this is, this is part of what my, not my issue with the thread or, or like why it stuck out to me is I'm not sure who he's addressing this to, but it ends with like reset your tolerances for complexity, reset your definition of gateway game to hungry, hungry hippo and loop and Louie. And, and then he says, I can't, I can't wait to see where that takes you. And I, I found this really interesting because my immediate reaction to that is, is that I, I think that if you do that, the the phrase or the term gateway game then just loses all value, right? Um, and the the issues with the term gateway game have come up many times over the years. There's a lot of people who think that it is very exclusionary, that it that it um, can be derogatory, that that it, that it, or that it developed a stigma basically that it was hobby gamers would dismiss a game, but like oh, Azul comes out, people say oh, that's a gateway game, and they would they would use it dismissively. And I think that was that was fair criticism, and that the community, uh, in particularly the content creation community that I'm a part of, and, and like that I follow and all that sort of stuff, have have sort of changed the way that that phrase is used and sort of use it in a positive way. And we've talked about that um, on discussion episodes in the past in the sense that we don't think, when we say that something's a family game or a gateway game, we certainly do not mean it with any sort of negative stigma. We are using it as a shortcut, as a, as a category or, or to provide a category where the rules are not necessarily complex, the strategy is not necessarily complex. That doesn't mean that it isn't there and that it isn't strategic and that it isn't deep, just that learning it is not overly complicated, playing it is not overly complicated, and it is very approachable and accessible to people who have not played a game before. Um, and I definitely think that there's a huge value in those games, um, but I also think that there's a value in recognizing that those games are a category and kind of do serve a purpose as a, as a bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it's okay for like to me, it's it's totally fine to have those games and call them that. And then also to to say that like Uno's a good game, Uno's fun, Uno's Uno is a game. Like I'm not trying to say that people who only play Uno are not gamers. Absolutely not. Um, but I I would like push back on the idea that Uno is a gateway game and Ticket to Ride is like a strategy game because then I think what ends up happening is if we do that, then we just end up, we're just going to end up inventing a whole bunch of new categories to talk about the games, games that are more complex <laughs> than ticket to ride. Because if your categories are too big, then they don't have a meaning. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I things like this, I, I, you posted about this tweet 
Yeah. And and I, I snarked about I, it. I had a reaction to it that was, I mean, like, I guess I cared less about it than you. And I don't mean that in, in like a dismissive <laughs> way. Or we shouldn't be talking about this. But it's like it didn't it didn't hit me as hard. I, I guess I didn't. I was like, whatever. Yeah. Uh, to, to Eric's tweet, because the more I've thought about it, the more I've kind of had a negative reaction to it as well, I guess. Because this is very similar to some other things we've talked about in the past. But I hate when people try to redefine things and like go against like the wave of, of, of the public. And what Uh I mean by that is that we use that term with meaning gateway game as it means gateway into the hobby, not a gateway into games, a gateway into hobbyist games. Right. And that, that that's mean. That's what people, people are often asking that specifically when they go, what is a gateway game? That's what they want. They want tickets, right? They're not asking on Reddit, what's a gateway game for Uno. That, that does not help them. (laughs) So Eric doing this to me, I almost wonder if he has to know what he's doing. Right? Yeah, I like, so I think he's trying to get us to think about this in a different way, or maybe he's just being kind of cute for that reason. But it's like nonsensical to, <laughs> to me because it, it's, 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 I don't know. It's not a positive, it's not going to yeah. have a positive outcome. I, I absolutely see value in him as a, a publishing professional and a design professional speaking to other publishers and saying there is an entire world of people out there who play games they don't play you know ticket to ride would be more complex than they're used to right now they're playing uno and phase 10 Mm -hmm. and skip bow and sorry and yahtzee and cranium and and taboo and scattergories they're playing all of these classic mass market games um and if you focus your attention as a publisher, as a designer on the hobby industry, and you only make hobby gamer ho- hobby games for hobby gamers, you're not going to grow the market. You're going to miss out on a whole audience, and, and you're not going to expand. I am fully in agreement with that. I think that's something that video games really struggled with for a while, and um, I think a, I, I regularly think about and reread Lee Alexander's piece called um, "Gamers Are Dead," and it, it's talking kind of about that the idea that the identity of a gamer who is someone who eats, you know, eats, breathes, lives video games. It, it, like it's, it's bigger than that. Now video games mm-hmm. blew way past that with mobile games and, and bejeweled and um, stuff like that. Um, and so that piece was kind of directed towards marketing p- professionals and publishers that there's this whole world out there. And if that's what Eric is trying to say, I'm fully on board, but, but Eric's audience is not just publishers and not just designers. And his tweet did not, specify that and he definitely responded to people throughout the day like coming from another angle and and that's kind of I guess that's I'm, I'm with you in that I think it's perfectly fine and even me using the term term hobby gamer I could see people saying that that's exclu- exclusionary right someone who has a game night every single there's you know what actually there is a person at work I know who has game night every week with with him, him and his wife and have a couple of friends and they have game night every week and they play primarily games like Taboo mm-hmm. and Scattergories um, and Yahtzee and Cranium. I think they play Cranium I mean, most of all. Those are all good party games, I would say. Yeah, exactly. Those are all good, good mass market games. Um, and so clearly playing tabletop games is a an interest of his, is, is a hobby of his. But when I say hobby gamers or hobby gaming community. I'm, I'm specifically talking about the folks who do play games like Ticket to Ride and also games, you know, like Dead of Winter and then coin games mm-hmm. and war. And then there's this whole hobby that we're in um, because 
lumping Uno and Monopoly in the same category as Gloomhaven, I don't, I don't know what purpose that serves. Um, I, other yeah. than as a, as a general reminder that like, yes, we absolutely, there's a bigger market than just hobby gamers. Um, like I said, I'm, I'm fully on board with that, but like to redefine gateway to include those, I think as far as him referring to the Overton window, that that's fine. We can shift it. And like I said, we're just going to end up with more categories. And so like part of me wonders if, if he doesn't like the, if he's one of those folks who doesn't like the term gateway per se, um, but then I just think that we we just pick a new word. Um, Luke Eddy, who who works for Asmodee, um, he was one of the lead designers, I believe, on Legion and some of the minis games. And, and so he's, I'm not sure exactly which company within Asmodee he's in, but he does still work with them. Um, and he said that Asmodee's internal term for this for these categories, like they, so they own Ticket to Ride. So um, Ticket to Ride and Pandemic and Catan and Spot It and stuff like that is they call them discovery games, not not gateway games because they are, um, they're, they're, they're the games that are available mass, mass market and therefore they are the games that people outside the hobby discover. And I, I like that term. Um, I probably like that term more than, more than gateway. Um, but even, even the way he puts it is that like there are, there are folks outside the hobby and they discover the hobby through these games. And so to me, that's the same thing. It's a gateway. It is, it is the bridge from, the, the the broader world of gaming that includes Monopoly and Uno, of course, to our little, you know, walled garden of of games that are different. And I, again, even that, like, I, I don't mean walled garden in an exclusionary way. I mean it in a categorized way um, in that there is like a subsector within tabletop games that you and me and, and you know, our listeners tend to, to live and swim in that is functionally different in the same way that like someone who goes and posts on board game geek, I'm looking for a gateway game is not looking for uno someone who's wandering the aisle at target looking for a quick game, easy game to go play with, you know, their kids, their family is probably not looking for Azul or ticket to ride. And yeah. Right. So like let's, let's let us, let's differentiate them and then embrace those differentiations um, in a positive way rather than trying to like redefine things. So I would, I would ask Eric, what, what is a gateway game? Yeah. So if you, cause if you define a gateway game as like the opening to discovering more, I would argue that maybe Uno is not the right game. Like, like people, I would say 70% of people, I, I totally made up like every other statistic, but like most people that play <laughs> Uno are not going to want more, right? Like if I play Uno with like, you know, like some non-gamers, like some family members that don't play games, you're not going to play Uno and be like, oh, I want to play games now. Like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, it's they're content playing Uno. Like, they would be playing poker. Like, it's not it's not a gateway to more necessarily. It's just that's Uno. It's an activity to do with people that everyone can identify with. Yeah, I played Uno at every, like, day summer day camp I ever went to. I played it in school. I mean, like, I played it a million times. Uno was not, was not what got me interested in playing anything beyond anything that, that we would now consider a hobby gamer. It wasn't Uno that did that. It was probably risk or yeah. uh, I mean, my, my, my true gateway game as far as like the hobby with a capital H was small world. Mm-hmm. Um, and even that is like a little bit more complex than ticket to ride. I don't know that I would say in today's day and age that that small world is still a good gateway game. Um, 
but it wasn't it certainly was not me rem- like looking back fondly on my days playing uno as a kid that made me like oh this is why I, I want to play tabletop games um but i think you know eric is using the term gateway game so, so he's not saying we need to refine it re- re- like pick a different word he is recalibrating and so like to me gateway implies a transition from one place to another um and it sounds like he's saying it's the gate like uno is a gateway game because a gateway game is one that takes you from not having played any games at all like literally no games at all to having played some games whereas like i think that's to me almost not worth like the the category it's to it's i use i use beer as a as an example a lot with this hobby um when people ask me what my hobbies are because craft beer um has has become at least like in my demographic for sure very like ubiquitous right now like i was at the brewery at a brewery this weekend with my dad he was visiting um and we were remarking that it's it was all almost all walks of life like age um presumed socioeconomic class just based on kind of like the brands people were wearing kind of thing age gender like i mean you name it it was all walks of life at the brewery um and so it makes it a very easy analogy for folks and so Uno is like Bud Light. It's it's Bud Light is is hard to brew. Like I'm not one of those craft beer drinkers who who like dumps on Bud Light. Um, it's it's a good beer. I actually don't. I also don't not like it. Um, but it, it's hard to brew. It is crafted. But saying that craft beer is or that Bud Light is a craft beer because of how hard it is to brew, then just like okay, fine. But that's not what I'm talking about when I say craft beer. So I'm going to end up coming up with some other term, <laughs> and it, we're right back in the kind of the same place again, where they're where we are categorizing certain things d- differently. Um, mm. And I get back to like games like Ticket to Ride and Azul and Reef or like um, Survive. I think Survive is a fantastic gateway game. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, like I think it's worth categorizing having a category for for those games and recognizing their ability to take people from i played uno growing up i played monopoly because everyone has played monopoly or my family had balderdash and you know like like all these games that we've talked about and you want to say oh great well my hobby is kind of like that but it's you know it's this weird wild world of conventions and stuff like that but let me grab one of these games that kind of is perfect for this situation where I can show you what I'm into with not without steamrolling you and you'll get a great taste of it. And maybe you never want to play those games again and that's fine. Or maybe you only ever want to play gateway weight games again and that's also fine. Or maybe you want to like walk down this bridge with us and you know, into Ikea and you're going to end up with your own Calyx <laughs> in a couple of years. <laughs> You know, like also that's all, all these things are fine, but you know, there are games that are good at transitioning someone from tabletop familiarity as far as like mass market games into the the quote unquote hobby. And I do think that's why it, like over the years I have tried to use gateway weight versus gateway game mm-hmm. um, more as, more as to, to target a specific range of complexity uh, versus lumping a game and to Eric's point, he said that ticket rides a strategy game. He's right. Pandemic is a strategy game. He's also right. Um, but the weight of strategy in ticket to ride is going to be very different than the weight of strategy in yeah. suburbia. Right. So mm-hmm. I like y- using gateway to refer to a point on the complexity scale, I think 
can get help get away from some of that exclusionary stuff. And that, that's also part of why I tweeted snarkily about this is that it's like every couple months this conversation comes up and it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel very often people ever stake a definition down or attempt to stake a definition down. They just say like, well, Twilight, like it's a useless term. Twilight Imperium was my gateway game, right? Or I think as Calvin has said that before, or like other people will say like, well, my first game was, you know, one of the coin games. Like that's awesome, but that's not, that's not the norm, right? So rather than say the term is meaningless or whatever, I, and we, since we were recording tonight, I was like, well, like, what does it mean to me? And it's, to me, it's a very valuable term to refer to survive and, and ticket to ride and splendor um, of, of these games that are one page, two page rules, one mechanism, not five, you know, under an hour and tend to give you a feeling of satisfaction even when you lose, like when you're playing for the first time, like even when you lose in ticket to ride, you probably built some routes and you connected some tickets and that feels good. Or like survive, you you either got some people to for, like to freedom or you ate your friend's figures with a shark. And like either way, that feels just as good. So like you, you get these moments of them. Um, it's like, I think there's value in recognizing like championing games that can do that, but then also saying like, yeah, then those can be a, a bridge to other stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I agree. Um, so yeah, I don't have, I have too, too much more to, to, to say on that. Um, you know, I, I definitely recommend everyone goes and, and checks out the, the full, um, thread that, that Eric was talking about because it is, like I said, I did not read all of it. Um, and it did spark quite a few responses it was quote tweeted 49 <laughs> times it's like it's got a thousand likes it's got a whole line of, of comments i mean you know he said it was a spicy take and like you said i think he knew what he was doing a little bit um but and so it prompted a lot of good conversation and i, I read a lot of it today because i was thinking about it um so i definitely recommend you you check that out and depending on when you're listening to this it may be difficult to find so uh he tweeted at 9 p.m on april 24th so it should be a little easier to find that way um but so so yeah go go read the whole thing and, and see the context and let us know what you think about the term in general or about eric's tweets or um you know what we're saying like are do you do you agree with us or or not agree with us um I like the term. I think it's a very valuable term. Um, and, you know, like, Charlie, when when you're talking about a game and you say, like, oh, it's Gateway Way, I immediately click in a whole bunch of expectations. And I think there's a value to that. Um, but I also think there's a value as a community in us coming together around some broad definitions and kind of accepting them and agreeing on the terminology. Because, again, if we don't, then the, the term also starts to lose its value for different reasons. Yeah. Um, so that's that's it. Raf's little little soapboxy uh, discussion topic um, this time around. Um, but hopefully, uh, hopefully we had some good responses and, and people talk about it. Um, the Board Game Geek Guild is probably the best place to do that. You can find the uh, the the Ding and Dunt Guild on Board Game Geek. Um, it's Guild Number Two Five Seven Six. We always say it in the outro, but um, we had some we had some discussion uh, over the last episode and and the Alien RPG. So um, it's a good place to put feedback, but also it's a good place to to hear from people and and talk about stuff. So uh, Charlie, do you have anything you want to add real quick, or do you want to? We can wrap this no, episode yeah. up. No, yeah, it's less than an hour, which uh, we I think we is did how it. We started Ding and Dent. <laughs> this that we started lasted, Ding I think, three fourths of an episode, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was intended to be under an hour, and I, very rarely did we hit that. 
Yeah. So now, now I can listen to my own podcast in my commute from my bedroom to my desk. <laughs> to your but desk. Not really. Yeah. Uh-huh. All right. So we'll, we'll wrap it up. Um, thank you everyone for tuning in and listening and sticking with us. Uh, let us know what you think about the format, please, please, please. Also, thank you uh, to miniature market for uh, also coming back and having our back as we, as we relaunch. Super appreciate that miniaturemarket.com. You can go maybe pick up some, uh, some, some gateway games or discovery games, or whatever you want to call them. Uh, go pick those, go pick those up. I'm sure they sell us? Uno. They pro- I'm sure they do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, Sorry. you can find us on Facebook uh, facebook.com slash ding and dent Twitter at ding and dent uh, the, the Board Game Geek Guild like I mentioned is guild number 2576 you can put that into the BGG URL and uh, you can find us uh, my Twitter is at Captain Raffi R-A-F-F-I and it is slowly starting to pick up with board game content uh, it was mostly baked goods through a lot of the <laughs> pandemic but we're coming back around yeah, I'm on Twitter as well. I'm at Charlie Thiel. I do not have any baked good uh, information, <laughs> just just board games. Uh, you can subscribe to us. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, and all those podcast uh, apps. There's more um, at our website. You can find an RSS link there. And our website is www.dingandentcast.com. There's also a contact form there if you want to reach out to us and let us know what you think. A couple of listeners did that as the last episode, and we totally appreciate that. Uh, if you are using those, um, shoot us a review. Uh, would be is always helpful. Um, I'm sure you hear that at the end of every podcast you ever listen to, uh, but it really does help a lot. So, um, thank you, and we'll talk to you in a couple weeks. See ya.